Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Uh, I'm back. I've been gone for three weeks. You all probably were gone during that same time, too, so you didn't even notice. Um, But it's good to be back all together. It's actually my youngest son, Bodhi's birthday today. He's turning six. Uh, Yeah, you can clap. Um, I was lamenting with him this morning that I no longer have a favorite five-year-old. So if you have a five-year-old in the congregation... You could be a candidate to be my new favorite five-year-old. Um, no, this morning, actually, I, I wrapped a gift uh, this morning, because that's how I roll. Um, and I put it up high on the shelves in our dining room. And it's a very strange-shaped gift, and I didn't put it in a box, so you can kind of see the shape of it through the wrapping paper. And my son, Micah, who's eight, said, Dad, it's so obvious what that is. He said, but, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> so it looks like a misshapen tennis racket, but there's going to be lots of hooting and hollering when it's discovered what it is. I won't tell you because you'll leak the news to my son. Um, no, it is good to be back with you. I spent the better part of the last two weeks in a house built into the side of a bluff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, in your face. Um, <laughs> And it was lovely. We ate like kings. It was my wife's family reunion, her family's family reunion. Uh, Her sister prepared lamb and chorizo burgers one night for dinner with tzatziki sauce and sweet potato fries with a curry aioli for dipping. I read a couple of novels. I went on some nice long jogs. Uh, It was quite lovely. And then I got on a plane with my family, flew back to Chicago, got into my office, opened my computer, and what was sitting there before me for our sermon topic for today, but gender identity. (laughs) Ouch. Um, (laughs) Who makes the sermon calendar anyway? Just uh, a request on my part. Could you give me a little bit softer landing next time? to go from rest and relaxation right back into the thick of pastoral fire. We are, of course, in the middle of our summer teaching series that we're calling Dividing Walls. Um, The big idea is that every culture, every society, in every age has particular issues that drive wedges between people. There are particular issues in every age that divide people, that separate people wherein people pick their team, go to their huddle, and then lob bombs at one another across those dividing walls. Lob bombs over at those people with whom they disagree. And of course, that's very true in our day and age. We have many dividing walls in our time. And so we're looking to address those today and ask the question, what difference does the gospel of Christ make in the face of those dividing wall issues? How might the life of Christ in us direct us to engage in those issues in a way that is different than the surrounding culture? 
How might we no longer be people who lob bombs at those with whom we disagree, but instead move toward those with whom we disagree, engage in love with those with whom we disagree? Now, it's important when we're talking about dividing walls and division to note that we don't mean disagreement. When we say division, we don't mean disagreement. Disagreement is a natural and good consequence of relationship. We should expect to disagree with one another. Spouses should expect to disagree with one another. Friends should expect to disagree with one another. Members of the same church should expect to disagree with one another. Disagreement is not division. What we mean by division is the refusal to hear or understand those people who hold a different perspective than your own. So it's the refusal to hear or understand those people who hold a different perspective than your own. And what does the peace of Christ bring to us in the face of that temptation to divide? Well, he doesn't bring disagreement, or he doesn't bring agreement, I should say. The peace of Christ doesn't mean that suddenly, magically, we all now agree with one another. What the peace of Christ brings is a willingness to love one another in the face of that disagreement. I can love someone with whom I disagree, and if I do love that person, that will compel me to want to hear that person, to want to understand that person. I'll move from being reactive to being reflective. I'll move from first seeking to win in my conversations and engagements instead to first seeking to learn, first seeking to understand, first seeking to benefit from someone else's perspective and how it might shape or tweak or alter mine. So then, with all of that in mind, gender identity. (laughs) Um, Why do people divide over gender identity? Or maybe better said, what is the source of the hostility that comes to the fore when we begin to talk about gender and gender identity in our age? Well, in a word, it's pain. Okay, gender identity is an explosively divisive issue because the misuse of gender hurts so much. And every one of us in this room, indeed everyone in the world, has experienced some varying degree of hurt because of the misuse of gender. So when we tread into this topic of gender and gender identity, we need to be aware that we are opening up pain. And that's true for all of us. We're all going into a topic here in which there's pain, in which we have baggage to deal with. And that's hard. That's not easy to do. So I would expect that as I teach today, some of you will be triggered simply by the topic. And then some others of you will be triggered by my failures in covering this topic, things that I leave out, things that I don't nuance correctly. Here's my plea in the face of all of that, my plea to you, my plea to myself, my plea to the culture, really, is that we don't allow our past hurts 
in the space of gender and gender identity to dictate how we will view gender moving forward. Okay, that's a very easy thing to do, actually, to use your past hurts, your past pains, your past traumas to define your worldview going forward. But that's a tragic mistake because when you do that, the whole shape of reality becomes distorted in your mind. If you allow your traumas and pains to define the shape of the world or to define what's real for you, then what becomes real or what becomes most true are simply those things that would allow you to avoid pain. You start to believe that what is real and true is just that which would get you out of having to experience more pain. And the tragedy of that, of course, is that love, which is the most real, the most true thing, often leads us directly into pain. And so to settle on a view of reality shaped by avoiding pain is to settle on a view of reality that is void of love. And that won't help you. That won't help any of us. We actually need love. We were made for love. We were made to love and be loved. And in a worldview that's shaped by love, we should expect to experience pain. They go together. To love is to set yourself up for great pain. I actually tell our pre-married couples that you are signing up to be the primary source of pain in one another's lives. And somehow they still wind up getting married. I, don't, I think they're just not listening to me, actually. <laughs> Much like maybe some of you will survive this sermon that same way. Um, so let's acknowledge as we head into this conversation about gender identity that we are all bringing baggage that we are all bringing pain, but let's also commit to not define our view of gender according to that pain. Let's seek to be open to see a different way. Now maybe for you, that pain looked like being a boy. Many of you were once boys who didn't play according to the standard gender stereotypes. And perhaps you had an uncle or a brother or a father or a sister or a mother, for that matter, who ridiculed you or belittled you, who name-called you on account of that. That hurts. Or perhaps you are a woman who graduated with honors and launched into your career quite successfully, were building a vocational future for yourself, and then at some point you had a child and you made the very difficult decision to give up that career, at least forego it for a season, to go and be a full-time mom. Many women make that choice. And perhaps you heard whisper campaigns from your colleagues, that you were somehow betraying your gender or betraying the cause of women's rights. Or maybe you're just someone for whom gender has always felt confusing, for whom 
your particular gender has always felt like wearing clothes that don't quite fit. And you haven't known what to do with that. You haven't had a place to talk about that. You felt shame over that. Maybe what is stereotypically defined as a man or a woman, you are neither of those stereotypes. That's very confusing, very alienating, very troubling. The misuse of gender stereotypes, it hurts. All of these ways of being mistreated through gender stereotypes they hurt. They feel invalidating. They feel discrediting. It can actually make you feel subhuman to be mistreated through gender stereotypes in this way, as though you don't belong anywhere or that you are somehow less than everybody else. These traumas and pains are real. Now, here's the thing. Gender stereotypes, they're not going anywhere. They're actually unavoidable. Gender stereotypes, they shift and they change in different cultures at different seasons. They will shift and change probably over the course of our lifetime. They've already shifted and changed over the course of the past several decades, but they're not going anywhere. There will always be gender stereotyping. The only question for us is, what do we do with that? What do we do with those gender stereotypes? Do we take them as gospel? Do we take them as binding categories and then use them to shape and define what it means to be male, what it means to be female? Do we use them as rigid boundaries and set people up according to them so that we wind up excluding some who don't fit according to those stereotypes as we hold them? Well, I want to contend that as Christians, we have no reason to give any particular gender stereotype that kind of power, that kind of place of privilege in defining our worldview, defining how we see the world. As Christians, we need not be enslaved by these gender stereotypes. In fact, it was our Lord's favorite practice, or at least one of his favorite practices, to go about ignoring the stereotypes of his time. Jesus walked through the earth, walked through the world with very little regard for the stereotypes that were supposed to define categories, supposed to neatly divide people and put people in their proper place. Jesus was constantly walking all over those stereotypes, breaking down those dividing walls. And the way he did this was to pay close attention to each person that he encountered. He paid close attention to the particular story and personhood of each person that he interacted with. He didn't think of people according to a group identity or according to a stereotyped identity. He interacted with individuals and he saw their heart and he saw their pain and he saw their longings and he saw their sin and he saw their folly and he saw their glory. didn't matter who they were, whether it was prostitutes or eunuchs or divorcees or adulterers. It did not matter to him. Men, women, adults, children, he interacted with them as people. 
See, because Jesus knew something. He knew something that's actually very easy for you and I to forget. He knew that every person, no matter what category the culture or society is seeking to place them in, every person has, by virtue of their creation, dignity and value. Every person is worth knowing. Every person is worth loving. Jesus walked in step with the heart and the mind of his father. And God is very clear about what he thinks of people. It's actually in the opening chapter of the opening book of the scriptures that we read this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man in our image, God says. Let us fashion humanity in our image. This is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determining to fashion a creature stamped with his image stamped with divinity, a creature that is unlike all of the other creatures, a creature that is elevated over and above all of the other creatures because this creature, contrary to simply reflecting the divine as all of creation does, this creature is stamped with the very image of the divine. Every person stamped with the image of the divine. No matter who you are, no matter what category you have been placed in, you sit over and above all of the other creatures of the earth as an image bearer of God. Jesus knew this as he walked the earth. And so when he encountered a person, he knew that he was encountering a person of God, a person stamped with the very image of God, a person worth knowing, a person worth loving, a person worth understanding a person worth honoring, someone who should not be easily dismissed or easily categorized, easily set to the side or easily marginalized. We are all image bearers of God by virtue of our creation. And so no matter your gender, no matter where you fit into gender stereotypes, or even if you don't, no matter if you are unsure of your gender, you can absolutely rest assured and know that you are stamped with the image of God. That you are worth as much as every other person. Divinity has been stamped into your personhood. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is what Jesus knew. That every person has been made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Your gender, your genetics, even your life choices cannot alter or diminish that reality. You are made in the image of God. You are worthy of love. Now, that doesn't mean that you are made in male and female stereotypes. When God says that he makes us male and female, he does not have in mind our cultural constructions of what that means. It means male and female as God defines it, not as we scramble 
to define it. Now, a short aside here. What of people who are born intersex where it is unknown whether that person physiologically is male or female? There are a small percentage of people who are born into that very difficult Situation. Jesus, you should know, speaks specifically of such people as having a special place in the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 19, you can read it there. Jesus speaks of people who are born in that ambiguous place where they do not know if they are male or female, and he says these people have a special place in the kingdom of God. Likewise, the prophet Isaiah echoes that same sentiment when he says that such people will be given a name greater than sons or daughters in the kingdom that is to come. God is one who reaches toward people on the margins, reaches toward people who don't fit neatly into categories and loves them and blesses them. Here's the point. No matter a person's gender, they bear the image of God and they should be treated with respect and dignity, and love, and the church of all places should be leading in that campaign. The church, more than any other place, should be treating all people with respect, and dignity, and love. We are the body of Christ. That means his life is our life. His ways are our ways. The way that Jesus reached out to people is the way that we ought to reach out to people. Indeed, how can we not? We've defined ourselves according to him and his way of being. Now, in our day, of course, confusion over gender is high. Perhaps it's at an all-time high. I haven't studied history enough to know. But it is certainly high, comparatively speaking, to other periods in recent memory. Many people are wrestling with whether they are male or female. Many more people are wrestling with that question today than were wrestling with it even 50 years ago. It's on the minds of more people in our time. It's on the conversation of more people in our time. And there are many complicated reasons for that complicated cultural and social reasons for that. I will not pretend to be an expert in gender dysphoria. I am not an expert in gender dysphoria. But what is tragic about the present conversation is that the gift of gender is being lost. And let me explain exactly what I mean by that. Our culture has come to see gender as a means for self-expression. Our culture has come to see gender as a means for self-assertion. So the pattern is I look within to discover just who I am, just who and what I am, and then I use gender as a tool to express that to the world. Gender becomes a tool for this is me. This is who I am. In that paradigm, gender is about self-assertion. And that flips gender on its head. 
That's actually a forfeiture of what the gift of gender truly is, of what God means to do, actually, in giving us gender. Gender was not given by God as a tool for asserting yourself. It was given by God as a tool for losing yourself in love. Gender was given by God as a tool for losing yourself in love, not for asserting your own personal identity. Gender is an opportunity to die to your own wants and desires. That's what it is. That's why God gave it to us, and to live instead for the sake of the whole. Gender is an invitation to live for the sake of something bigger than yourself. It is not a tool to express your own personal identity. Gender makes no sense independently. It makes no sense as a tool for self-expression, as a tool for independent expression. There is no male without female. There is no female without male. Gender actually forms us in such a way as to be interlocking parts quite literally, physiologically, when we think about sexual union, but also in a thousand other ways, gender readies us to be part of something bigger than ourselves. It creates in us the capacity to complement one another, to be complementary parts of a whole, to lose our own individuated identities for the sake of the whole identity. So to receive the gift of gender, then, is to receive a call to lose sight of your individual concerns and to begin to defer toward the concerns of the whole, to become a part of something that's bigger than yourself. Put another way, gender is fire. Gender is fire. It burns up our individuated ego. It burns up our individuated wants and desires. It calls us into something outside of ourselves, something bigger than ourselves, calls us to be a part of a grand puzzle, a grand design, to not simply belong to ourselves. That's why what our culture has done with gender is so tragic. We've turned it into a means of self-expression and self-individuation. Individuation. I want to be this way. I want to be this sort of person. I want to look this way, dress this way, be this way. And so I will express that as though gender were a tool for it. But the church can offer a different vision. We actually have an opportunity as the church to hold on to the gift of gender that has been given, the gift that God has given to us. It's ours to hold. It's ours to preserve and relish. We need not be swept up into the culture's present confusion. In fact, as the church, our resistance to that confusion will wind up being one of the great gifts that we can give to the world. Because when the dust settles on this grand social experiment of using gender as self-expression, when the hypocrisy from the academy 
is exposed and people who have followed it see the harm that they have done to themselves and to others. The church can be a place for healing, for care, for restoration. The church has an opportunity to welcome people in who have been led astray when the dust finally settles on the present cultural madness. So what are we preserving? What is the content of our resistance to the current cultural belief about gender? Well, it's not stereotyped definitions of male and female. We are not interested in preserving any particular stereotype of what it means to be male or what it means to be female. We're not interested in privileging any particular decade over any other or pretending that we could define it that narrowly. Rather, we're interested in preserving God's definitions of male and female. God defines the roles for men and women both in church families and in biological families. And in both cases, the call to these roles is fire. In both cases, the call to these roles burns. In biological families, God speaks quite clearly in the book of Ephesians, famously read at weddings repeatedly, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Could there be hotter fire than that? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, set aside all of your desires. Set aside all of your individuated benefit. Set aside everything that you personally and individually long for, for the sake of the whole. Lead the way that Christ leads, which is to say, go to the cross. Do not insist on your own way. Lay down your life for your wife, for your family. Give up on everything that you have dreamed for yourself and live for the sake of the other. Live for the sake of your family. And wives, follow that lead. Submit to the Christ that is manifesting in your husband. That's fire. Elizabeth Elliot, the famous missionary and writer, speaking of this very fire, of this very husband and wife relationship, she writes, insistence that both lead means there won't be any dance. God calls husbands and wives into a dance. One leading, one following. He calls husbands to lead in the spirit and the way of Christ, and he calls wives to follow that manifestation of Christ. That does not mean that wives follow what is not of Christ. 
some jerk husband bossing around his wife and family to the order of his own benefit or to some harm to them, there is no call to follow such nonsense. We follow Jesus, period. But God calls wives to follow Christ as he manifests in their husband. And he calls husbands to lead in such a way that manifests the person of Christ, to lead in such a way that is Christ, that is the life of Christ. Make no mistake, this is fire. Some of you are burning right now as I speak. There are hardly hotter words that could be said in our day and time. These roles are a cross. They're a giving up of your individuated, individualized identity and ambitions for the sake of the whole. They're a laying down your own individuated identity for something bigger than yourself. As someone who's been married now for 15 years, I can testify that the fire burns. How often would I rather do something that benefits myself rather than something for the sake of my whole family? How often am I tempted? How often do I give in to that and chase what is good just for me, often to the great harm of my wife or children? And what is it that calls me back? It is this gift of gender. It is this gift of God, this call of God for me to be a husband, for me to care and attend to the needs and concerns of my wife before my own. This call to be a father, to be present and gentle with my children. It is a rescue from myself. It is a rescue from the individuated manifestation of self that I would so easily run with apart from this gift of God, apart from his call on my life, his speaking to me of who I am and what I am, the identity that I have in him. It's fire. Now, in the church, the gifts manifest similarly. The gift of gender, I should say, manifests similarly. The scriptures in too many places to cite here call men and women to different roles. Women are to be spiritual mothers. Men are to be spiritual fathers. Women are to train the younger women in the way that they should go. Qualified men are to serve in the office of elder and to lead and make decisions for the church for the sake of the whole. This is fire. Any differentiation between gender roles in our time assaults our egos. It burns up our egos. It rips at the very fabric of what we've been told we need most, which is to be whatever we want to be. No, the gift of gender says. Whatever you want to be is not the way of Christ. 
The way of Christ is the way of love. It calls us to a dance bigger than ourselves, to play complementary parts. Now, it's important that you know this, that in our church, we don't require that all of our members see gender in just this way. In fact, there are many members of our church who believe that women should serve in the role of elder in the church. There are many members of our church who believe that neither spouse should take the lead, per se, in the home. And we can disagree about those things. And it's good to disagree about those things. And it's good to talk about those disagreements. And the more we talk about those disagreements, the more we can learn from one another and sharpen one another, provided that we enter into those conversations with open hearts toward one another. Not first seeking to win, but first seeking to understand, first seeking to learn, to understand each other's pain and how that has shaped us, to understand each other's perspective, to reason from the scriptures together. All of that is good and right. We want to be a church where there is a diversity of view on these secondary matters. That's a hard thing to pull off. And we want to be that because we think it's important. We think it's something the church can give to the world. But what we must agree on as Christians, what we must agree on as people united in Jesus, is that we are part of a body that is bigger than ourselves and that our own individual desires must defer to the greater need and good of the whole. That is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. That's what it means to be a part of a biological family, that your own particular ways and desires defer to the good of the whole. You see, there's a trajectory to gender. We were given gender to take us somewhere. We weren't given gender to just camp out in that identity. We were given it for a purpose. It's leading us somewhere. And that is into the very heart of God. Your gender is the means by which God will lead you into his way of being. The means by which God will fully realize the mantle of you being made in his image. How he will grow you up into a full expression of humanity. The most human thing that you can be, the most fully human expression that we can achieve, is Jesus on the cross. What it means to be most human is to step into that life with Christ, a laying down of all that we desire for ourselves and living for the good of others. Our genders were given that we might lose ourselves in that life, that we might lose ourselves in him, that all of our individuating and self-asserting would get swallowed up in divine love. It's so important to know this. You were not made for autonomy. You were not made to belong to yourself. We were not made to belong to ourselves. We were made to be one in Jesus. Apostle Paul says it this way in the book of Galatians, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our gender has a trajectory, not self-expression, oneness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your heart for people. And we thank you for the gift of life and personhood that you have given us. Thank you for that expression of gender that is present in our midst. For each person here that you have made, formed, and given that gift to. Pray that charity would define our relationship with each other. That in the face of these difficult conversations, these dividing walls, we would be people that move toward one another, people that have the hard conversations, people that are open and willing to learn, willing to admit when we are wrong. Lord, teach us your ways. Teach us to lay down our own self-made identities and to live in the identity as your image bearers alone. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.